We welcome our political commentators and today it is Neil Jones and Tim Hurdle, both in the Wellington studio with me. Kia ora koroa. Nice to have you both here. G'day. G'day. Uh, Tim is former National Party advisor. He was campaign director for National at the 2020 election. He was briefly acting chief of staff for Wayne Brown as he transitioned into the Auckland mayoralty. Neil Jones was chief of staff to the then Labour leader Jacinda Ardern. Prior to that, chief of staff to the then leader Andrew Little. He's the director of public affairs firm uh, Capital. Gentlemen, let's look at this event and series of events that Auckland has had um, beyond that Coromandel, Northern Waikato, Northland... The significance of that Auckland event two weeks ago and this one, Tim, is that so many people and so much infrastructure is affected. And when we get through this, and I'm conscious we're in an emergency right now, but when we get through this, minds must turn to how we manage this, infrastructure-wise, funding-wise, recovery-wise. We talked to Raf Manji, a former Christchurch City Councillor, earlier in the week about his proposal that SKIRT, which was the model between central government, local government and private providers specifically on infrastructure rebuild not the big you know, stadium projects or the anchor projects but specifically on the infrastructure rebuild and whether that might be the way to go here you were working for Jerry Brownie at the time, can you pick up a little bit on what decisions the government might face in Auckland and elsewhere? Yeah, um, the skirt model uh, came out of some discussions with the um, civil construction industry um, and really was a, a, a function of the scale of the event, which was um, some percentage of GDP um, in one in one city, not a city as big as Auckland, and a realisation that the amount of work that was going to be required was quite substantial, uh, and that by going around and tendering every job, and there were going to be about a 1,000 jobs, uh, we were going to go spend a lot of money tendering and getting 20% of the work going to one company and 20% going to the next company, and that actually what was needed was an organisational layer above that, uh, and also the difference with the Christchurch model was um, the fact that it was underground damage. Uh, when you have an earthquake, you can't tell what pipes are broken and cracked where. The thing about flooding damage is it's quite substantial, but usually it's uh, through culverts and drains and things like that, and it doesn't have the same degree of cracking or damage. I think what will happen in this case um, is there will have to be quite a bit of uh, funding for things like manage retreat if they decide that flood basins are going to be cracked, but a lot of the actual maintenance and maintaining will be expensive, but comes through existing contracts that the likes of NZTA and Auckland Council have. They will have contractors in place to do this work. Where it will get expensive is things like those state highway collapses in places like the Coromandel and North state, Northland. State highway is government anyway. Yeah. It's it's that call that the Deputy Mayor Desley Simpson put out a little bit earlier as well, and I think she referenced Christchurch as well those local body politicians are eyeing the impact on rates that they're trying to contain. Mm. And is there going to be an argument for a, a special government funding intervention here to assist Auckland, or is that going to be a precedent they won't go near? It will be a very difficult precedent to go near because there are set formulas under civil defence requirements. Um, it used to be uh, 55 or 60% government funding in these circumstances. Given the constrained nature of Auckland Council, they'll be looking for more than that and the scale of this event. And we've just heard Karen McAnulty saying this is now a national level um, civil emergency, so there is some precedent there. Uh, the question is always where does that end and how much is it going to cost? I suspect that there will be a degree of um, government support or funding for the Auckland Council because their books, as we saw before Christmas, are very constrained, but I'm not quite sure um, it will require a special delivery model, but um, the funding support probably will be. 
What are you taking from this, um, Neil? There are, there, are, there are many things that are going to come out of it, but the, the immediate recovery is the important thing. The unfortunate thing about something on the scale is the immediate recovery is years. But yeah. how is this going to change either how the government is thinking and preparing or what the discussion is going to be? I think there's a couple of big questions that arise around planning at a local level that the government's going to have to be on top of. Um, one of them is around do we have the high-quality water infrastructure we need? Uh, clearly that hasn't been good enough in Auckland and that then gets into the issue of three waters. People may not don't often realise storm water is the third water and so that, that debate I think will chug on. Um, and then there is also the question about why councils and in some cases even central government in terms of Kaiangora have been allowing building on land that is flood prone. 55,000 um, houses someone identified at the yeah, weekend. I think it was stuff.co.nz. And so the government does actually have a couple of things in train on this. There's a natural and built environment uh, legislation which is currently before select committee which will give direction to councils or around planning that will make them take into account things like flooding. The problem is that will take years to go through the planning system and I suspect David Parker will probably be looking at what he can do in the short term to speed that up because we don't want people building houses in flood-prone areas while, while Parliament's trying to fix that. Um, I think the other, obviously the other areas to mention is managed retreat. Um, James Shaw has legislation that they hope to pass by the election which will get into this, this really knotty issue of what you do when you decide actually people shouldn't be living here. We shouldn't have houses in a certain place. And how those costs fall. Do they? How much do they fall on central government? How much on local government? How much on insurers? And how much do we leave to people to cover themselves? And that's going to be difficult. Um, it could get very political. I hope it doesn't. It's the sort of thing I think we need a cross-partisan agreement on and some long-term security. It's kind of like the, what has been discussed in theory for years is now... Yeah, it's real. real. Okay. And, and one more thing I think I just want to touch on, I think the government can do, and I understand they are thinking about it at the moment, is helping people deal with their insurance companies. Um, you know, the Christchurch recovery, there were some good things there and there were some things that weren't so good. And one of the things I think everyone kind of reflects on is 10 years on, you still had hundreds of people who hadn't settled their claims. And so I think the government does need to do something to help people deal with their insurance companies and get that sorted. The flood plane construction, I know this has driven the council's bonkers for a long time. I remember the late Dave Cull being very proactive on this and um, his council in Dunedin actually going to court to try and stop a development and losing. And then the development got flooded, I think, before anyone moved in. So that's frustrated councils. That's a legislative issue and, and about where the power for decision-making lies. But what about the infill? And this has been the other question that people have raised. And this, of course, is a popular policy for Labour and the Greens. Um, and national, indeed. Yeah, OK. Because, yeah. The, exactly, that was a bipartisan deal. But is the infrastructure keeping up with the number of new connections, Tim? Yeah, and that's a problem. You, the infill also puts more pressure on the storm water. Um, and Neil was mentioning stormwater, but we're, we're talking about 100-year events here, so that is a problem. But managing stormwater is going to be a big issue in Auckland, regardless um, of <laughs> even... you know, we, we get storms. events, it's, it's, the, it's the, the irony massive, of that word. The 100-year yeah. events are not coming but, every 100 years yeah, now. And so, so we, we have to work out um, how we deal with that from a, um, a land-use point of view, because you can't keep trying to outbuild it with more concrete. All right, let's um, obviously keep a mind on what's happening at the moment but there's no doubt that it plays more broadly into the political conversation it has dominated Chris Hipkins first is it even two weeks yet in the job and a lot of talk about how it has crowded out um, uh, Christopher Luxon um, what do we make of other matters happening early in his premiership and let's turn our thoughts to what happened to the policy reset this is kind of part of the policy reset in a way this is part of the bread and butter what did you make of the announcements last week? 
Uh, well, just to pick up, though, on, on one thing Neil didn't talk about there that, that's relevant to this conversation is those floods will have a major impact on inflationary pressures. And this is this is going to be the underlying sort of challenge is you've got a government trying to reduce points of difference uh, and problems for itself, um, but that's exacerbating that inflation problem and the economic situation, which are a challenge for any government. And I think those are these are what we're starting to see, the, the shaping up as the contest of ideas the points of difference, and then the underlying economic situation deteriorating, which is never good for a government. That said, it's also going to help GDP because disasters, as we know, are good for GDP. So, on the, but inflation is that more impactful immediately on? Yeah, although the vote? I, I have a slight um, contrary opinion on that, in that flooding, you can't live in a flooded house. It's it's rotten jibboard. Um, it's going to be very directly affected. The thing about Christchurch, yes, people uh, to take time to get their houses repaired, but you can live in a house with um, a degree of damage, but flooded out, rotted out um, houses are, are unlivable, and that's going to put tremendous pressure on the accommodation market and on the building supply market and on the trades just to get round in time. OK. Will they have the line, though, as has been used previously, inflation was imported, now it's going to be inflation as a consequence of this event? There, there is an extent to which a disaster does allow you to wipe away some of those political troubles you get. So John Key was able for years, whenever there was an issue with unemployment or wages or whatever, to say, look, we're the GFC, and then we had the Christchurch earthquakes, and we've had to deal with that. And I sat in a lot of focus groups and voters in the middle just sort of went, yeah, give the guy a break, he's had to deal with some disasters. So I think there is an extent to which Tim makes a fair point, but I think people will give the government a bit of leeway, given both COVID and now the floods. And in that powerhouse, voting powerhouse that is Auckland, their immediate issues are probably going to top even the price of the block of cheese for, for some households, mm. not others, of course. For, for, for others, it's just a compounding disaster, right? But, but if we can get back to the, to the events of the last week, I, I do think that policy bonfire, as it was dubbed, was very smart politics. I mean, we've talked about the need for this for some time. Um, it, it was clear that the government had been sort of dragging itself down with a series of policy reforms that, you know, not all of them were necessarily hugely unpopular with voters. I don't think people were that worried about the TVNZ RNZ merger, for example. But it gave a sense of a government distracted by pet projects and not a government focused on the cost of living, which is overwhelmingly the issue for voters. And so I think Hipkins was able to both clear away a bunch of things that were causing him problems and reposition himself on cost of living. And I thought it was quite smart doing that minimum wage increase on the same day. It sent a signal to Labour supporters who might be a bit upset about policies going that, hey, we're still, you know, we're still a progressive the, government. The, the, the um, employment insurance scheme went the same yep. day. It was so kind of give business, and take. business kind of got a bit of give and take. Uh-huh. And, and, and it also was a material impact on cost of living. And if you look at what he's been doing in the first few weeks in the job, uh, he's had three announcements he's made. They've been extending the fuel tax cut, which, you know, I think is in a cost of living crisis makes sense politically, um, boost to the minimum wage, and also signalled a crackdown on truancy through these truancy offices, which I think has been announced later this week. And so I think with all those three things, you can see a return to sort of that bread and butter material issues, you know, core questions families are facing, you know, um, can I afford to fill up my car? Are kids going to school? Yeah. Can I get ahead? And that's that. I think is the contrast he's trying to draw. The with question is whether it's enough to change a mood. Now that early round of polling suggested, in the short term, it was enough to change a mood that appeared to have become quite entrenched uh, of frustration and fatigue with the government. Can it be sustained, Tim? And what's going to determine that? Well, the problem they have is is the credibility of, the, of those changes. So they've now parked a lot of them and put them on in the on the 
in the in the next term, but they'll mean those issues will be revisited. They start also any government that's been around for two terms um, is to re- assess on its record and its track record, and now it's got a record of not delivering on quite a lot of projects and not even delivering on on pet projects and getting into trouble on them. So when the quality of of promises they make in the future are, are pushed out there, they're evaluated against that by voters who say, well they couldn't deliver on these other things, so why would I trust them on that? So the problem with walking backwards on things like that, yes, you remove the problem in the short term, but it can be a challenge to make those things um, not not impact on what you're doing in the future. Where I'd counter is I don't think anyone really cared about those projects. The, the, the reason you could get rid of them is because there weren't lots of voters lining up demanding an RNZ, TVNZ merger, for example. They were things that seemed irrelevant to people's lives. And I, I guess I would also say that, you know, it, it it's the, these are sorts of policies that, you know, the ones that he's put on the back burner rather than got rid of, they're things that will have to be addressed. He's got them out of the eye for now, and he's, got, he's not talking about them right now, but the government, a government of any stripe is going to have to respond to the Royal Commission on hate speech. They're going to have to figure a way through that. The Law Commission's probably a smart way to do it. And the Three Waters reform, you know, th- just as we've been talking about today, there is no easy answer so on that. So how does he deal with the two outstanding elephants in the room, Three Waters is one, and I've just forgotten what the second one is, um, but Three Waters is one, because what he jettisoned, he obviously got agreement from his cabinet, and they want to be back in power, and they want to keep their seats, right? So there's an element of self-interest in agreeing to things, and then there's your principles and your, you know, die-on-the-beaches policies. Mm. And that's where what's interesting to see is how much a, a powerful uh, Māori caucus, many of whom are in cabinet, how much they are prepared to yield on the co-governance and related issues of Three Waters. Now, is this two- to three-week hiatus till an announcement all about that? I don't think there's an easy answer, Catherine. If I had an easy answer, I'd tell you and we wouldn't have a problem. But I think the problem with Three Waters, and I should declare my firm does some work for an EWI that has an interest in this in Three Waters, but I, 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 I think if Three Waters was easy, there'd be an answer. There's not. Um, there is a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, I don't think it's going to be as easy as saying to councils there's some easy compromise because they don't want that power removed. And the co-governance issue has become so detached from reality, I'm not sure what change would really fix that. Um, Kieran McInulty's a smart guy. I'm sure he's looking. At, he's got smart people advising him and he'll be looking at options. I think there are probably some things the government can do to take the sting out of it. But I think also one of the, thing, one of the features, I think, of recent weeks and the change in the political landscape is Christopher Luxon is now starting to come under pressure about not having answers of his own. And I think the government does need to actually have that debate and say, well, hang on, it's easy to say scrap it, but then what are you going to do? Yeah. And he doesn't have any answers on so that either. So it's not a scrapping we're expecting. What I'm looking to see, Tim, is how much of um, a concession the Māori caucus might make. And, and there have been mistakes. Um, Minister Nanaia Mahuta's entrenchment clause, and we're learning more and more as the OIA is released, have taken a lot of ground from under her mm. in arguing um, uh, the Maori caucus's case for a very strong ground on co-governance. That you know, so she's, she's you know, if you assess this from a political analysis point of view, you would say that is the case. The question is, what can he strike with his Maori caucus uh, and beyond the Maori caucus with Maori interests in the freshwater specifically that also allows him to re. Um, design the public face of this policy. Can that be achieved? I think they're going to have to go right back to um, square one because they've clearly made a lot of promises to um, iwi um, leadership. Uh, we could see that with 
some of the things Tuki Morgan said before Christmas on behalf of the iwi leadership. Um, I think the analysis of I've looked at those um, those reforms. There's a whole heap of bundled of issues about financing. There's um, about crown guarantees, and there's a there's a liability issue talked about about councils' balance sheets and things like that that are tied up in there. Um, and it's also um, for me, I think they they can't make small concessions or changes. They have to pretty much park the whole thing and start agreeing with a, with, a, with a sheet of paper trying to work out what they're achieving. But the point you're making um, very well is is how do you balance that against what promises have been made to the to the Maori sector? Okay, okay. So we wait and see what happens in maybe a couple of weeks' time. There is also the reality that um, one of the reasons the government has done has gone down this path with um, governance arrangements is that. If they did not, there is a very high likelihood they'd be dragged through the courts treat, or and be required to anyway. There is an unresolved yeah. matter with fresh water yeah. that has been kicked for touch for and, years. And, and the previous national government with the Waikato River Authority set up a very similar co-governance arrangement for precisely the same reason. Okay. Let's look at where this leaves national. It's been a stunning turn of events at the start of this year, and not just the change of leadership, but the fact that the new Prime Minister has been in front and centre in crisis leadership mode uh, for these couple of weeks, and, and doing it his way, right? Uh, and where has this left National just essentially crowded out? Does that matter, Tim? And as many are calling for, is the essential thing now that Christopher Luxon does redesign his strategy and plan for this year? I think they're going to have to have a really strong think about what are the points of difference that will convert median voters to voting um, for the National Party? And I've said on this radio show before that going from... Um, Opposition to government is a really difficult thing and only really happens. Um, it's only happened 1975, 1990, 2008 for the National Party. This is a big um, generational change. So to get those voters to come across, and bear in mind we're coming off a 2020 election with the highest possible Labour vote and the last possible national vote, the pendulum swing has to be massive. So to, to convert those voters, they have to have a real reason to come over and start voting for Christopher Luxon and support National. So the points of difference that they were running on were, we're not Jacinda. Now they have to have a story and a narrative that really connects with um, with those voters and says, well, the reason I'm going to support National is they're going to offer me this. And because people default to incumbency, they tend to look at what they've got and realise, is the risk worth taking before they change their vote? Yeah, I, I broadly agree with that. Um, Christopher Luxon was running a very small target strategy, which was don't announce policies, uh, just oppose everything, rely on the economy, general frustration with the incumbent Jacinda Ardern through the times we've had, uh, wearing away at government support, and it was working for him. I mean, odds on, if you'd asked me into last year, I'd have said National is almost certain to become the government. It was that Labour seemed to be sleepwalking to defeat. And I, I think that now, you know, now that Chris, Chris Hippens has come in and he said, you know, I'm not Jacinda Ardern and I'm getting rid of some of the things you're frustrated with, that's really left Luxon quite exposed. And I think he's in a bit of a danger zone right now, which is that strategy that had been working so well for him is suddenly very ill-suited to the time he's in. And he has no answers on the major issues. And I don't know if that's entirely by strategy, but it seems to be. And, you know, that's backfiring. There have been, you know, Matthew Hooten, you know, had a column in the Herald on Friday when he talked about Christopher. Uh, I think it was... Um, Kate Hawksby had a piece in ZB. I had a call from a you know a radio station, another radio station today, saying, "Can we talk about Christopher Luxon's leadership and if it's at risk?" Um, so this this talk is starting to happen, and I, I think that is a problem for National, and it's a problem for Luxon that people are saying this. Um, I also noticed there was a 
public meeting in Rangiora last week, and there was some vox pops of people afterwards, and they were just middle New Zealand, probably a bit national, and they'd gone to see him speak. And there were quite a few comments from people just saying, oh, look, he seemed okay, and he said all about how Labour had got things wrong, yep. but I have no idea what he stands for. I think this is another problem they have. Apart from the leadership change having... Um I don't want to say Lancer Boyle, it's the wrong phrase, but, but you know, dealt with an issue that the former Prime Minister herself clearly came to recognise, which is that there was a fatigue around her associated with, actually overexposure of anything in the pandemic, associated with something that people wanted to move on for, a fatigue that happens typically at the end of third terms and had happened to her. And I've no doubt now, reflecting, that was part of her decision-making, right? But it's not just about that. These storms now are also reminding everybody that governments actually have big issues and big problems to deal with. And we are back talking about infrastructure, for God's sake. And we're back Mm. talking about managed retreat and all those things you don't want to talk about on a lovely, you know, summer's day. Auckland hasn't had any this summer. So it's back to substance. Mm. And the question is whether National has and will present that substance to them. Yeah, and and they have to find... um, a number of issues that they can dominate the government over that um, the public says National will do a better job than the government on uh, and that they are the ones worth tr- uh, trusting and the problem they have is they've got to act on their rights if they shift too far right, get into a scrap with there, they'll lose the middle voter but they have to get into the into those issues that really matter to middle New Zealand that requires some really deep listening um, into what the public mood and what the public psyche are, are really worried about. I w- a couple of things I just want to touch on as well. I think there needs to be a bit of rigour. There was an, an interview on Morning Report last week with Christopher Luxon where he was asked about co-governance. And, you know, he was asked, you support Kohangareo and you support Order, but you don't support the Māori Health Authority. You support the John Key approach on co-governance, but you don't, you don't support Three Waters. How do you square that? And he just had no answers that were credible. And that, I'm seeing that quite a lot. They, I just don't think they've done that work to really build their programme and build a strong robust contrast. It's been very cheap and easy. That's worked for them and it's yep. not now. The other thing I'll just say yep. I'll just say quickly is I think he's got a trust issue. If you look at that poll that Reed Research did, showed Chris Hipkins two to one people trust him. Luxon's been in the job a year. More people distrust him than trust him. And I think for him, you know, he says people just need to get to know me and that's fair. Yeah. But well, people are starting to say, Well, is the problem that you've had a year and they do know you. He's also not to be fair just over a year ago, National was polling in the 20s and was lurching from one leader to the next. He's done part of the job of leader of opposition. He, he has got to be on a sort of some kind of university micro course fast track mm. if, he, if he wants to, to become the Prime Minister in October, right? So the question remains whether he can um, develop those strategies, illustrate the depth that you expect of a Prime Minister, not just a chief executive, mm. which is a, a line, personally, I think is overcooked. Um, and then the third thing, as you say, is whether they can refocus their strategy and time. I do want to talk about ACT, because ACT are a very, you know, you've got to give it to David Seymour and that party, again, into what he has achieved from being a sole player. Everyone, you know, was talking about being gifted Epsom and, and, and the last guy standing in ACT. Now we are also seeing columns written about whether ACT really has the power here, Tim. Whether ACT can sit on the cross benches and say, you're not passing a damn thing without us. And is that kind of level of political savvy and strategy and experience expose Chris Luxon to, to Labour attacks, 
that this is the way that government would head. Mm. Yeah, I, and this is the thing. Act's gone and built those points of difference over multiple years. They've they've carved out some niches and really dug into them. Um, National hasn't really, in the last under Luxon, particularly grabbed an issue. He hasn't claimed to be the education leader or my, my legacy will be this. And I guess it was because they were really looking for that um, small target, no target strategy. And so I guess they haven't really taken hold of any particular issues. They've been running social media. Um, I noticed the National Party talking about and trying to respond to the Hipkins attack that they've got no policy and, and throwing a few things out there. But I think even their social media showed that they haven't gone to Neil's point into great depth and detail about what they'll do. So I guess the challenge they have now between now and the budget is really coming up with some quite tangible uh, change that people can really lock into. Just on the ACT-National mm. relationship, Neil, if you would, and then we've got to go. Sure. Look, I, th- I think there is fertile ground for Labour to make something of this. Um, because of Luxon's thin policy agenda and because ACT has a very clear agenda, quite extreme at times, you know, Treaty of Waitangi Referendum, Repeal Zero Carbon Act, Winter Energy Treaty Payment, gone. Waitangi Principles, I think, is the referendum, to be yeah. specific. Yeah. Um, th- these are all things that are quite extreme. Labour can trot them out. And on current polling, it could have a quarter of the cabinet, and you've got in Christopher Luxon quite an inexperienced leader. So there is the recipe there for a tail wagging the dog thing. I would just say quickly, you know, when I worked for Labour in opposition, it was a constant query from the media about what the Greens would look like in a Labour government, and we did a lot of work to show we could work together constructively, budget responsibility rules, memorandum of understanding, lots of projects. Act is going the other way. They're attacking National. They're promising to drag them to the right. I think it's a real problem for Christopher Luxon. Thanks very much, both of you. That is Tim Hoodle and Neil Jones.